0: Welcome to the Thriving Artists Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for visual artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding for working artists. To turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. Despite having 200% more education, less than one-third of working artists fully support themselves with their art. The difference is proper business training, which the Clark Hewlings Fund solves with educational fellowships, digital education, and in-person learning. You could have an exponential impact on working artists and our economy with a monthly donation that funds, CHFs, educational programming, and this show. Your investment does not buy an artist a fish, it buys the fishing rod. So give small at ClarkHulingsFund.org slash impact. That's ClarkHulingsFund.org slash impact. Our guest today is Ron Whitmore. Ron co-owns and operates Artisan, an art supply store with two locations where it serves as a community hub for artists, namely in Santa Fe and Albuquerque. He also hosts the largest artist material expo in New Mexico with over 100 workshops, and he is the host of Art Fusion, a radio show that brings together musicians and visual artists to talk about their creative processes ron welcome to the show well thank you daniel it's a pleasure to be here ron uh, can you take a minute to tell us just a little bit more in your own words about yourself and your work
1: sure i didn't take business when i was in school i was actually a nutrition major at the university of arizona and i was a musician playing in piano bars back then and i got out of college and i worked for marriott corporation At Sky Harbor International Airport, doing food service to all the planes for about seven years. Owned a restaurant for a little while in Scottsdale. Sold our restaurant and realized that if I got into another business in Phoenix, I'd be stuck there. So my wife and I came on out to Santa Fe and I started working at Artisan in 1988 as a sales clerk. Ended up buying the business with some partners. I've been doing it for 28 years now, selling art supplies, waiting on artists, enjoying artists, serving artists. We we had a store in Taos for a while that we closed about 10 years ago. So right now we're running our Albuquerque store and our Santa Fe store and, and just still enjoying what I do.
0: But now you're trained as a classical musician uh, and given your interest in music, why then the art supply business at all?
1: Well, to be really honest, it's hard to make a living as a musician. I still play at local bars. I, I've been in the same band for 20 years. Uh, we play out at Parties. We were the house band at one of the local Indian casinos, but loading equipment, unloading equipment, coming home at one thirty in the morning smelling like smoke and, and the whole environment just really, really didn't suit me. So I, I still record music. I write music. Uh, I'm going into the studio in July and recording another album. But as far as making a touring living at it, it just doesn't fit into what I want to be. Um, I have four grown kids. I have seven grandkids and I like being at home and, and I like my home and I like Santa Fe. It took me a long time to get here. I enjoy the city and I don't want to go anywhere else. So that's, that's kind of why I do music on the side.
0: Well, let's talk about that issue of physical location then. So is there a reason that, other than the obvious one, that you might want artists to go to a brick-and-mortar store for supplies rather than, say, an online retailer?
1: Well, when I started, there wasn't even online retail. They had first the mail-order catalogs came, and then online came, you know, maybe 10 years ago. In my opinion, there's nothing like being able to actually go and feel some paper, look at the paper that you're going to be painting on to take a brush and to run it across your hand. You know, a lot of people come in the store, I know, and they they see the merchandise here and then they try to find the the cheapest place that they can get it. But we have a relationship you know with with our artists here. I actually used to wait on Clark Huling's, uh way back on our Canyon Road store. I used to play tennis with them. We, you know, you develop a relationship where they trust you, and all our salespeople are working artists. Uh, every, you know, a lot of them are part-time, but all all the people here really know what they're talking about. And you know, I'm not going to say any names with mail order, but sometimes when you call, you're you're really getting people whose whose heart and their passion isn't really into the art materials. Like if you come into a brick-and-mortar
0: store. So you're talking about a direct personal connection, and I get that, and that is a differentiator for brick-and-mortar in general. But uh, let me ask you, how do you set yourself apart from the competition uh, as an art supply store versus other art supply stores?
1: Well, believe it or not, there used to be four brick-and-mortar art supply stores in Santa Fe, and there used to be five in Albuquerque. There's, we are the only one left in Albuquerque, and we are the only one left in Santa Fe. The last one in Santa Fe closed up about a year ago. So the internet has really taken its toll on a lot of art supply stores. A lot of great ones in New York, like Pearl Paint and New York Central, no longer exist. Lee's Art Supply. You know, it's it, it's a it's a battle. I, I can't say it's easy. People bring their phones and they show us what prices they can get stuff, but you know to me there's no way you can compete with an online retailer that doesn't have the overhead doesn't have employees doesn't have insurance doesn't have the the building expenses that we have so we don't try to compete price wise but we we compete with things like having our radio show on Thursday that we feature different local artists and Give them, you know, press and let them tell their story about how their careers evolved. We have a yoga class on Wednesday morning that brings people in. We have art workshops on Monday morning, Monday afternoon, Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon in the front of our store. We have a life drawing uh, on Thursday mornings. We have free demos on Saturday. So it's it's offering services that are interesting to artists that that people in the community can come in and and you know, see firsthand how art materials work, and artists are sharing their knowledge in our store all the time. And we're even gonna be adding a food cart out in the front that people can order coffee and sandwiches and that type of stuff when they're taking workshops and such. So it's really making it an experience instead of just the cheapest thing that you can
0: get online. Okay, so I'm hearing that being plugged into the community is the main driver, but what about does digital technology or e-commerce or virtual art itself present other challenges or opportunities, even for a business like yours? Because even if the transaction happens in person, still a lot of our life is digital, and even a lot of now, our interactions around art are digital.
1: We don't stick our head in the sand and pretend that it's not out there. We have a website, and in fact we have a new website that we've changed, basically adding items that, that you can't find anywhere else. We have custom canvases that are made for us, we have a warehouse on the other side of town that does custom canvas stretching. We stock twelve different rolls of different weights of cotton duck, which is very, very hard to find. Santa Fe is a, a very professional market. We have over two hundred galleries here in a town of eighty thousand. So, I mean, it's it's a very high end market, and we've always stocked We used to have twenty six lines of oil. Um, now we have about fifteen lines of oil, but it's just a a great product diversification that, you know, online—not not all online—I don't want to be negative on it—but they they kind of cherry pick what's going on a little bit. And if you come into a good brick and mortar store, I mean, we carry stuff that, you know, a mortar and pestles for grinding pigment. We have the old pigments. It's really a conglomeration of of stuff that's hard to find. So, you know, the digital age is here. You know, we're 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 with it. We have young employees that, that keep us old guys up to date. But um, you know, it's it's there's still nothing like being able to walk into a store for art supplies. If you, if you're if you're an artist, walking into a a real store that that carries fine art and has a broad selection, I don't think there's any substitute for digital.
0: So so let's stay on that. Let's stay on that trajectory and sort of first-person shooter with the artist that comes into the store. Um, So, artists come in and out of a place like Artisan, and you have an opportunity, of course, to talk with them about their work. What do you see as the most vocal challenges that working artists face, and what do they talk about struggling with the most?
1: Well, the artists here in Santa Fe, I can only speak, I, I work primarily at our Santa Fe store, and I mean, the whole gallery scene here has changed, and the way artists are marketing their work has changed. Galleries way back in the heyday, you know, 15 years ago, gallery openings would be bombed with people. They'd be crowded. You'd be selling, you know, 40 paintings at an opening. The art market here in Santa Fe has changed a lot where a lot of the artists here are are marketing themselves through Facebook, having their website. Facebook drives it to their website, and then they have sales uh, models on their website. They can sell paintings and ship paintings out like that. The gallery scene. There's still galleries come in and out here. It seems like more often. It's um, there's very very established galleries that have had a the same stable of artists for a long time, and they, you know, they, they add occasionally new artists, but they, they their draw has been that they have artists that are very 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 established. But it's it's like anything. It's like our model has changed because of the internet, and I think that the digital age has changed the way artists are are marketing their work here and some are doing it very successfully a lot of them have just pulled out of galleries and they're not giving the 50 percent to the galleries anymore and and they're keeping it and they're selling their their stuff a little bit cheaper than probably the galleries would sell it but they're getting hundred percent of the commission and and selling it direct
0: wow that's an interesting uh, phenomenon so what you're talking about is uh, a greater degree of independence uh, for working artists opportunities to diversify and multiply their income streams and, and take a little bit more control over um, the sources of their capital. Now, you're uh, also the host of Art Fusion, which is a local art and music radio show. Why do you do that show, and why do you think people are listening to it?
1: Well, I got asked to, to run another radio show here about a year ago um, called Art Talk that was all on the gallery scene. You know, my... My interest has always been music and art and the visual arts. And I've noticed over the years, we have so many artists that come in here, like Terry Allen, like Bill Worrell, like Paul Shapiro, uh, that are very, very successful in both, in both visual arts and in music. And then I actually started doing some research about, you know, about sound and about light, and sound is if you take octaves sound is the fourth through the 14th octave if you keep speeding up vibration light is in the 49th octave it's really a very very similar process whether you're a visual artist or you're a musician and some people tap into both It's just it makes an interesting show because we have some of the top musicians i just had a guy that today that opened up for zz top and and the allman brothers and he's aside somebody that painted portraits of henry kissinger and they're talking and they're comparing you know how similar their processes are and how different and then in their careers and to me it's 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 just kind of a natural thing and i i have interest in both so it was a natural progression for me
0: how did you get it off the ground initially and has anything changed since you sort of taken over that show
1: well it's actually the number one show on k v s f um and there's a lot of reason for that and i think part of it is the marketing of it is we we market the show we have a a mailing list of, of over 6,000 that we picked up from different shows that we've done, the Artisan Material Expo that we do every other year. And so we send out an email blast on it, we put a blast into the paper, and it's really caught on like wildfire here. And we send out digital releases that the artist and the musician can send out to their mailing list or their Facebook. So you know like like anything you can have the greatest thing in the world but if you don't have the tools to market it and you don't know how to market it it's not going to go places but if you if you have <laughs> the tools in place and the base in place that you can do some marketing with it and the product is good it it makes it a little easier and i enjoy it and i really have interest in both of them i've been you know waiting on artists for 28 years so a lot of the artists that come on the show we have a lot of history of when they used to be back on Canyon Road and the history of their careers, and then music comes naturally to me. And I know most of the musicians in town because I play around too. So it's just kind of a natural fit.
0: So, you know, the show has a unique format. Uh, You pair a musician and an artist for each episode. Uh, it may seem like an odd question, but do you put any special effort into the pairing uh, the way a sommelier might pair wine with a cheese or an entree, you know, genre, style,
1: whatever? Absolutely. That's a great question because most people wouldn't pick up on that, but that's exactly what we do. When I, I usually select the visual artist first, and because they're either in the store or I, I know their work or I've had a relationship with them, and ask them to be on the show and my first question is what kind of music do you like do you have a favorite performer songwriter in town and generally you know we get into people that have are writing songs more songwriting than just a performer that's that's doing top 40 or, or cover tunes i look for someone that has creativity and are writing their own music and and generally the visual artist, i give them the first shot of picking somebody and then i'll go after that person uh, we had an artist that was on that, that actually painted to someone who did sound healing and the sound healer invited us out to his studio where he had 10 keyboards and he was playing all this incredible music that was synchronated with colors. Every, every key that he hit on his keyboard had a color that was lighting up on a piece of mylar on his ceiling and he's done sound healings that have brought people out of comas and that type of power with sound. And she paints to him, and so they both came onto the show, and just a very, very powerful synchronicity of of music and art.
0: Well, now you also uh, sponsor the Material Expo, and I wonder, has that evolved since you originally launched it back in 2000?
1: Oh, absolutely. Actually, as a material event, we we have, and I'm I'm not just saying that it's the largest one in the world of its kind of instructional and material event. And basically, there was a show out in Pasadena about 20 years called the Methods and Materials show that started all this. And they were bringing in the different manufacturers of the the paints and the brushes and the papers and such. And then they were running about 50 or 60 different artist workshops. And the owner of one of the paint companies, Holbein, a gentleman named Peter Hopper, who has passed on, was coming through Santa Fe about 1997. And he said, you know... If you did it in Santa Fe, you know, it's not like Pasadena or Detroit or, you know, people, artists love Santa Fe because of the light, because of all the galleries that you have out here. I bet you could grow this show into, you know, one of the largest of its kind in the world. And we have just stayed with it. And we have relationships with all these manufacturers. We buy from them all the time. So it's not like I'm asking someone I don't know. Most of these manufacturers are friends and. And we have 80 booths now. We moved it out of our, we outgrew the city convention center. So we moved it out to Buffalo Thunder Resort. Um, it's turned into the largest event that Buffalo Thunder holds. We hold it every two years. so we don't burn ourselves out and burn out the artists that we asked to teach out there and the manufacturers, it's expensive for them to come out and do it. And it, we had our largest show um, in 2016, and we've already booked for 2018. We're doing it September twenty seventh through the thirtieth two thousand eighteen and it's it's just massive art energy. The energy you know like I like to say, it blows the roof off the convention center because it's just so many you know people that are interested in the materials and and the manufacturers are selling direct, so obviously it's better than the prices we can sell as a retail establishment, so the pricing is phenomenal um and it's free to get in. We haven't created any barriers, it's free to get into the vendor floor. And then the workshop um, has grown from, we used to have 60 workshops, and now we have over 120 workshops. And the National Encaustic Groups come in, and they run their encaustic convention and their workshops, too. So it's uh, it's just kind of snowballed. It's 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 fun, too.
0: Well, I'm curious. Now, we talked earlier about, I mean, because this gives you a lot of perspective, running a radio show, running a, a, a store that's really a hub uh, running this sort of expo slash convention, it's got to give you something of an aerial view. And we talked earlier about how art has changed in the way it's marketed, but I wonder how the art industry has shifted overall or in other ways since you uh, took over Artisan. Have you seen any general trends?
1: Yeah. In, in art supplies, I mean, when, when I started back in 88, you know, most art supply stores were half transfer lettering and that was Pre-computers, I mean, uh, there were many stores that went out of business because half their inventory were scratch-off transfer letterings, and then computer changed that. The big trend now, I mean, we used to—I said we used to have 26 lines of oils; it's down to 15. Oil painting, pastel, watercolor is still popular, but what you know, there's a whole bunch of other stuff. The the digital arts, which we're not heavy into selling the materials for that, but spray paint—we we we never stock spray paint till maybe six years ago and now we have several lines of spray paint and there's a lot more urban art going on. Acrylics by far have, have taken over um, as a new medium, not new anymore, but there's constant changes. It used to be just a plastic. I think it was invented in the late 40s by Sam Golden and Lenny Bokur. Golden is, is a great company that makes, you know, Pretty much, they do watercolor now, but they're pretty much an acrylic company and they've come out with so many different mediums and so much stuff that you can manipulate acrylic that, you know, acrylic and spray paint are have been hot things. Coloring books has had a big national comeback, so we, we do a lot with coloring books. That's probably, as far as a trend, what I've seen is just a switch more from the traditional oils, traditional pastel to acrylics and spray paint.
0: Well, it sounds like that I mean, that implies the general trend is uh, cross-genre, cross-medium, and maybe a, a little bit more diversity, perhaps a little bit more acceptance of diversity or, or a little more exploration of it in genre and medium. Uh, would you say that's right?
1: Yeah, I would say that's definitely right. That's exactly what's been happening.
0: Now, also, you used to... Folks, this guy's prolific. (laughs) Just accept it. He's prolific. But you used to own a G-Clay gallery also. And I'm wondering, do the strategies for marketing G-Clays, do you think, differ from marketing an original piece? We're interested in that.
1: Oh, definitely. Actually, I got into the G-Clay business because we have so many customers. We actually used to do Clark Hewling's G-Clays. And... So many customers like Clark Hewlings that their their work has gotten into the hundreds of thousands of dollars for an original piece and they were coming into our store and I thought, well when J first came out, this is just a natural thing. You can we can digitally reproduce their work, sell it for, you know, in the hundreds of dollars instead of the thousands of dollars and we had a lot of the cowboy artists of America Clark Hewling's, you know, people that were very prestigious artists. We were reproducing their work. We got out of the gallery business here uh, for, for several... We actually had two Giclee galleries, one in downtown Santa Fe and one in the mall. The problem in Santa Fe with the Giclee market, the way I perceived it... I mean, we were breaking even, but it wasn't anything that was profitable. It was, there's so many artists in Santa Fe. I mean, you can go downtown, there's art shows downtown, every community has an art group, you know, art tours that they do. Trying to compete, you know, with the high-end jaclay market, Santa Fe is still a relatively small town and there's just so much good original art um, that we decided to kind of step back. We still produce jaclays for artists in the store. We have a Jaclay service. We have a warehouse on the other side of town that, that does canvas stretching. We stretch up jaclays but as far as trying to sell them, it, it's, we're going to leave that to the gallery people. <laughs> it's it's not really our niche.
0: You know, there are some artists who sort of see reproductions as the path of least resistance, meaning that, you know, do fewer original works, uh, make your living off of reproductions uh, on, I guess, the theory that they're easier to, to market or sell or, or, you know, the price point is reaches a, um, a repeatable clientele. I'm curious, what you think about that if if that is something you've seen, I'm not asking you to respond to a straw man, but have you have you seen that phenomenon do people talk that way
1: i it, you know it's a it's a train of thought there there's some artists that I know that do these shows across the country, these outdoor shows, and that they, they do maybe five or six originals all year long. That's all they do, and everything is reproduced into different sizes onto different on metal, onto canvas, on to paper, the geclays. You know, the real popular thing has gotten to be enhanced Guclase, um where they're putting on different types of gel and actually making it look like an original painting. In my opinion, honestly, there's a, there's a fine line. It depends how you're representing it because my opinion of geclays is they are a print, period. They're not collector items. A lot of people got into, and, and we did it first, about numbering them, that you number one to 50, and that's all they're going to do, or one to 100, and, and they're going to have different values and such. I don't really see that as as truthful and viable. I, I see that if you, if you want to reproduce your work or you want to leave as an heirloom to your heir, or something that can be reproduced, that has value. Trying to, to represent it as something that it's not, you know, as an original piece of art, I, I think it's cheating the public a little bit, honestly.
0: Do you think there's a particular point in an artist's career when they need to start focusing on creating prints uh, or reproductions of their work or is that immediately after they create the first original?
1: Oh, I th- I think they have to have they have to have a name. There there's a lot of artists that jump on it too soon and you know their their originals haven't gotten to be, you know, valued by people enough that they're looking for prints of it. I mean, there's rare exceptions to everything. I mean, we stock a lot of cards from artists and, and we have a card rack of all local artists that are reproducing their work on cards and those, those will sell. People aren't looking for a name, but if you're really looking, you know, I've found for, for Guclays, people are looking more at what the name is. I mean, they have to like the image, but they're looking for one, of you know, a cowboy artist or someone that they really couldn't afford an original and would rather go to the Guclay market. There's also, I got, I got to mention, too, that um, there's a lot of misrepresentation where a lot of artists, not a lot, but there's some artists that have gotten just a tad bit lazy with not wanting to to do their drawings. And so they they do what they call mixed media on ink. And if you see something mixed media on ink, generally the drawing has been a jaclay. So they have a jaclay made of something, a, f- a photograph or, or something that they did, and they basically go over... And they're putting on gels or they're putting on, you know, different substrate to to make it a mixed media piece. And they call it mixed media on ink. And to me, that's a little deceptive.
0: Yes, that's interesting to, to pull that out for people, uh, the, the small minority of the audience who doesn't understand necessarily your point. I, I think... It's that uh, underlying this work that is by hand there is a work that is not by hand and correct <laughs> uh, and yet you're selling it as an original work and technically it's an original work when you get done with it if I if I make a painting on uh, a table that I got at Sears it's an original work uh, but maybe I want to disclose that you know the table came from Sears so I get it that's uh, fascinating I hadn't I hadn't read that as code quite that way before so now i know (laughs) thank you
1: well i think i think galleries you know galleries have to watch out i have i have a lot of friends that are, are are very successful artists and they document their work now i have some friends that are cowboy artists and they belong to cowboy artists of america and they actually take pictures of them drawing in in the painting, uh, for they have the, all the stages that they actually reproduce their painting because there was such a, such a deception going on of, of artists using print and using computers to do the drawing part and then going on top of it, you know, um, so it, it's, it's a very real thing.
0: Now I wanna pivot, we've spent uh, the, essentially the length of the first two segments of the show talking about the changing art market. Uh, And now I'd like to zoom in a little bit and talk about, you know, artists themselves. So you interact with a lot of artists on a day-to-day basis. Uh, Can you tell who is going to be successful or not?
1: Uh, Great question. Absolutely. Um, And it's funny. Tony Obeda is a very, very successful Native American artist. And I used to wait on him back when I was a clerk at our Canyon Road store 25 years ago when he was a student at at the IAIA, the American Indian Institute out here. And when I waited on him, you know, I'd open up a paper drawer and he would just look. We'd have all these different colors of rice paper. And there was just a confidence. He was a student back then, but he just, there was a confidence. And he just looked and he said, okay, I want that one, that one, that one, not that one, not that one. I'll take that one, that one, that one. You know, and there was just a, a confidence that he really had the vision in his mind of what he was creating, and I'm sure it evolved as soon as he got going. But there was an air, there was an air of yes, I know what I want. And Tony's gone on to you know great successes and such. It's 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 not always the same for every artist. It's not just a confidence thing. But I, you know, I asked Woody. Woody Gwynn was on our, our radio show, and Woody Gwynn is a very very successful artist. And I asked Woody. I said. So how, how did you become so successful? And he said, you know what you do? You just, you really just keep doing what you feel you need to be doing. And if you do it long enough, people believe in it and they feel it too. And and <laughs> I think a lot of that is truth. If you just, if, if you know what you want to be producing and you believe in it, after a while, you know, everybody, they'll pick up on it. You know, they'll start believing in it too, because you've, Put the time in and the years in and, and the passion in and people feel passion so I hope that answers your question
0: it does but I have sort of a related question which is and we get this question a lot actually at the Clark Healings Fund you have described what how you can kind of tell who's going to be successful but um, that doesn't answer the question what makes artists famous in the first place what is what are the core ingredients that determines that that is turns out to be one that we all know? Well, if, to
1: put one answer on that, I think that if if an artist really, really believes in themselves, they're going to keep being an artist no matter what, and, and whether they're selling or whether they're not selling, but the ones that believe that they can stay and they're so great and they don't need any marketing, they don't need to get out there, that they're going to it's an ego thing that they're going to be discovered someday, and and I'm that good. It doesn't really work like that. It doesn't work in business like that. And and if you, the bottom line is art is a business, and you need to have some kind of marketing plan. You need to be able to to go out and and knock on doors, on galleries, on you know get your website up, get your website updated. You know, uh, stay with the times. Uh, be able to develop a mailing list. Be able to to mail out to your mailing list on a regular basis. Get collectors. Keep track of them. You know, when when we um, when we do our art material expo, even with the instructors, the instructors that that really fill the classes at first, like Nancy Rayner, she she has five books out. She doesn't. You know, she's a great artist. She does her art. She also does gets her name out in front of people. She does books and, and keeps a mailing list. She's a businesswoman. When she comes into our store to do something, she has her own sound equipment for everybody can hear. She makes sure the mirror is, is placed. It's just attention to detail and and marketing yourself. Uh, you know, we wouldn't be in business if we didn't have, you know, people up at the top here that market artisan. You gotta you gotta get out there and, and get your your stuff in front of people.
0: So, do you think that, um, you, you talked about the need to have a marketing plan and that sort of implies under, underlying it, the need to have a business plan, you have to understand sort of the business objectives you're trying to achieve before you can decide, you know, to market in accordance with that. But underlying that, I wonder, um, do you think, Ron, that a lack of business training hinders some of the artists that you come across?
1: Uh, absolutely, especially nowadays where more and more art is being marketed by the individuals. Um, you know, the galleries, and I'm not saying galleries are, are dead by any means, and there's there's still very very viable galleries that have great marketing departments. But what does a gallery do? A gallery gets an artist, they have an opening, they send out to their mailing list the artist's name. their they're marketing. If an artist nowadays, since there's more self-marketing through Facebook, through mailing lists. Through so even these outdoor shows, through restaurants, you know you gotta you gotta have some sort of business savvy to know what you're doing is and probably some computer savvy to to know how to get to you know Instagram to Facebook, to all the things where people are looking at and be able to to keep lists, to be able to your your collectors, like the people that are our best, Customers are people that have come through our front door once and they see our store They've had a good experience they go back and they come through again and they come through again and they come through again Same thing with an artist if you got people that have collected your work And they walk away and you didn't get their email address and you don't know who they are You know they might want another piece in a year and they don't know where you are or how to get a hold of you So I think you know having basic business training is very very important
0: some artists recoil from the notion that art is a business and in fact Uh, just don't believe that the principles of operating a business apply to their work. So you've kind of addressed this, but I I still want to hit it one more time from a different angle. What I hear a lot is, well, look, Jackson Pollock didn't have to do that. He didn't have to learn business skills or learn how to market himself. He wasn't a self-promoter. Vincent van Gogh wasn't a self-promoter. Pablo Picasso wasn't a self-promoter. These guys, they were just good enough. And, you know, I'll be honest, Ron, I I have a sneaking suspicion, but I I can't help but feel that, you know, there's a reason these guys were at those openings and those parties and clink glasses with high society or had a Theo in the case of uh, Vincent Van Gogh. And um, that it wasn't, it seems like once somebody becomes famous and you ask them how they got there, Instead of telling you how they really got there, which is they had to think about it, work at it, they tell you, I'm just that good. And if you're good enough, you'll, you'll be famous too, kid. You know? and, and it creates this myth. Uh, I see a lot of junior artists uh, who are wanting to be that next Jackson Pollock uh, buying into. And it seems that what it does is it doesn't turn them into Jackson Pollock. It serves to keep them poor. And so my question to you is, did I just make that up? Is that nonsense or do you see this as a phenomenon? I hate to just kind of script you. That's not my intent, but you seem to be going in sort of that direction with what you've said in the first place.
1: Well, I I think honestly, because I can compare it to musicians and really it's depending what you want to do. There's people that are very, very good at their art and their intention really isn't to be famous and isn't to... Sell a whole bunch of art, I know some very, very good musicians that don't play out and they just enjoy their music, they enjoy playing with people. Their goal isn't to be famous and to sell a lot, but if your goal, in my opinion, is to make a living at it and and to make a good living at it and to rise up and be famous, there's always an exception i mean the cream can rise to the top and and you can you know sell yourself on it that you know if I keep practicing and I keep doing it, I'm going to get so good that everybody will recognize it. Well, you know what? If people don't see it, they aren't going to recognize it. How are they going to see it? And 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 the people that get seen are the people that have the drive and the business concepts to be able to use what's available in front of them to get it out and get it seen, you know, whether it's getting restaurant shows or whether it's getting on the internet and whether it's getting it on Facebook or whether it's, you know, gallery owners too. When they When they they don't want something that's hard to sell. Gallery owners are looking for people that have mailing lists and know how to market themselves because that makes it twenty times easier for a gallery. If you walk in and just say, I'm so great, but you know, nobody knows I'm great, but you know, you can look at this and I'm great. You know, if you walk in and say, I have a mailing list of ten thousand collectors and, and they all, you know, appreciate my work and you know, I'd like an opening, that makes it a whole lot easier for a business to say yes.
0: Do you think that Artists are sort of treated as um, a special class in our society. You know, um, you should be poor and do this for the love. Are artists instead glamorized in our society in a, in a way that, you know, wow, that's that's a dream profession, only the select few can do that? Or is it, uh, in, a, in a kind of contradictory way, some of both?
1: Um, I, I think it's some of both. I think the, the starving artist is kind of true. It's people that really, really sometimes, I mean, it depends if art is really at, you know, tugging at their soul and that's what they want to do. And they quit their job to become an artist and they haven't established themselves yet. They're going to be starving for a while because they're, they're not going to be selling work enough to pay a mortgage or to put your kids into school or anything like that. If, you know, after a while, if, if, if they keep pursuing it, they they might change. The artists that we deal with here, we deal with both. I mean, we deal with artists that come in that, you know, and I know who they are, and if we have broken pastels or half-used acrylic or something, you know, we know that they're financially bound, and we'll we'll show them that, give them to them. And then there's artists that walk in, and they could care less about what price something is. They don't care about the Internet. They'll look at the oil rack, and they went, this color, this color, this color, this color, this color and they know what they want they've they're established in their career they're successful at it and you know they i've i've seen both ends so you know it it's, it's a double-edged sword
0: well as we sort of wind down the show these are um answers i think uh, our audience is going to uh, value highly or or give them a lot of food for thought it certainly does for me uh, but i want to ask you a couple of questions just about clark healings because you actually knew clark healings so Um, You know, how did you how did you meet?
1: I I met him when way back when, when he came into our Canyon Road store, we we used to be on historic Canyon Road. We've since moved to the main business district. And Clark was just a class gentleman. He always was. We actually brought in small tubes of Holbein oil just because Clark Hewlings wanted a smaller tube of oil. And we became friends. He's a very genuine person. Uh, he invited me I was a tennis player, and he had a tennis court at his house. So uh, he invited me over to play tennis on a regular basis and talk art, but you know talk other things too. And, and he had a great sense of humor. I was actually, uh, Don Meredith was a friend of Clark Hewling's. He invited me over to a party that Don Meredith was at, and Clark Hewling's dog bit Don Meredith right in the finger, and he bled on a napkin that my wife and I cleaned it up, and I wrote a poem about uh, Clark's dog biting Don Meredith. But Clark was a class act from the first time that I met him, a genuine, human being and probably one of the best artists that I've ever met. I just admired his work so much. I was able to see some of the paintings that they had in their house that he didn't take to the gallery. And these were some, I think, of Clark's best paintings. And and he was just a class act from the day I met him till the day he
0: passed. So what do you think that Clark would think about the Clark Healings Fund and its mission to sort of, uh, well, not sort of, but its mission to equip Working artists with entrepreneurial education and business skills.
1: I think Clark would be totally behind it. Clark, I, I'm I'm not sure of all of Clark's history. My understanding was, you know, he was also working at the lab before, you know, his paintings and painting on his own, and he painted in in great detail and and just really perfected his craft. But, you know, I was a clerk, and he invited me over to play tennis. I mean, he you know encouraged. Encourage me. I mean, I bought into artisan, own artisan. I'm in a different position in life than I was back then. But he invited me over, you know, just on a very, very human level, and I'm sure that the the goals of the foundation would be right up something that Clark would want is just to encourage anybody that had the had the art in their soul to get it out and to and to become an artist. And, you know, it it's hard because, you know, there's it's not like our society supports a lot of artists. It's not like the old Mentorship where you worked with a great artist, that's a very few people that have that lucky situation that an artist will take them under their wing. Now it's, it's, it's expensive and there's supplies are expensive. Everything's expensive. So just getting them a start is something I'm sure
0: Clark would be behind. You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for visual artists. For more information on Ron Whitmore, visit artisansantafe.com. That's artisansantafe.com. For more information on the Clark Healings Fund, visit clarkhealingsfund.org. To sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit clarkhealingsfund.org slash impact. And be sure and follow our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Ron. It's been really great having you.
1: Yeah, well, thank you, Daniel. It's been fun.